Have you guys ever found yourself in such a situation where you just feel like your thoughts and the situations of life are just sort of slipping out from under your grasp? I mean, you might be juggling multiple balls or spinning multiple plates and you just can't seem to keep up with them. And so your anxiety level and your worry level just increases and increases because you just feel this strong urge and desire to really control everything. Well, actually, in our passage today, we see Abram and Sarai, Abraham also, as he is known. Uh, we see that there's a situation in his life that he feels, Sarai as well, his wife feels, that is just slipping out of his hands. And they try so hard, so hard, to control what they think they can. Well, we've been walking through uh, Genesis chapters 12 to 23, and here we're looking at Abram or Abraham's life. And today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 16. And his story, with all of its ups, which there certainly are, as we saw last week, and then with all of its downs, is a story about two people who trust in God to some degree. They struggle to live in the reality that God's promises are true. And he's learning and God is teaching him to, to what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. So if you're visiting with us, let me catch you up to speed here on Abram's life. Uh, out of all of the peoples of the earth, God in his sovereignty and in his goodness chose to bring his promises to that particular man, Abram. He drew him out of a pagan background and he had a pagan upbringing he is from this place of pagan worship called Ur of the Chaldeans. And God chooses out of everyone to bring his promises to him alone. And what he's doing there is he's remaking and recreating a people for himself. People that would actually walk after him and seek to love him. Because we know that from Genesis chapters 1 to 11, once sin enters into the world because of Adam and Eve, Life just kind of goes out of control. Sin sort of spreads drastically. So much so that at one point in time, God just looks at the entire earth and says that there was nothing but wickedness in men's hearts. And then in Genesis chapter 11, you see uh, all of the people trying to make a name for themselves, trying to reach up into the heavens and really to be just like God. It's actually the same sin that Adam and Eve were guilty of. God drew near to his creation and his people just kind of said, you know, buzz off. I'm going to do what I want to. And there we see is the very first sin. So as God brings his promises to Abram and Sarai, he's wanting to recreate a people that will love him. Genesis chapter 16 comes after, obviously, Genesis chapter 12. How's that for deep insight? But more importantly, it comes after certain promises. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we see some of these promises that some people say everything up to Genesis chapter 12 leads up to it sort of climactically when it comes to the story. And then everything after Genesis chapter 12 in the Bible is a fulfillment of it. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 looks up to leads up to Genesis chapter 12 and those events as God brings his promises. And then from Genesis 12 onward is a fulfillment of these very promises. This is what God says there in verse number one of chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you 
a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 16 takes place 10 years after this initial promise. Here, God has given him the promises, but like every person, like each and every single one of us, we all struggle to live a life of faith if we are Christians and not by sight. So Abram and Sarai, they waver in their faith here in Genesis chapter 16, big time, big time. The good news is that even though they waver, even though you waver, God does not. Even when his people think they can rescue themselves, God continues to rescue them. So the big idea from Genesis chapter 16 is rescue is not in ourselves nor in our own plans, but in God and his plans. Big idea. Rescue is not in ourselves or in our plans, but in God and his plans. And the chapter can be broken up into two sections, just like chapter 15 was. The first section is verses 1 to 6. Abram and Sarai create their own rescue plan because they're desperate. They don't want to lose control here of the promises. And then section number 2 is verses 7 to 21. God comes to the rescue of Hagar. So section 1, let's go ahead and look there. Abram and Sarai create their own rescue plan. Really an effort to lay hold of the promises here. And let's see what they want to be rescued from. This is the problem that Genesis chapter 16 brings up. Look there in verse number one. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's bad news, especially given the promise we just read, right? I mean, how do you build a kingdom from a man if the guy can't even have kids? That's the problem. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And then without skipping a beat here, you know, we know what's coming she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So you can see like the bright idea coming, coming to Sarai, right? Ten years after the promise had been given, nothing is to show for it. They don't own any of the promised land. They can't have children. As scripture says that it was Sarai who was the barren one. So this is bad news. I mean, if you guys have ever struggled and wanted something... For let's say a month, do you know the difficulties that can come? The, the discouragement that can come? The hopelessness that could come? Especially if you tried to have children for a number of years. Here, we're looking at a decade. So you can just think about it. Put, put, the, put yourselves in their situation, right? If this was modern day, they would be trying to have children. They would be checking to see if they had children. And then be let down because they don't have any children. And this happens not for one month, not for three months, not for 12 months, but for 120 months in a row, most likely. So you can feel the discouragement, right? This promise here somehow is slipping out of their control. It's a spinning plate that they ultimately cannot control. And Sarah, I knew this situation all too well. The barren one, she was the one lacking in children. But while she was lacking in children, she certainly didn't lack in strategies about how to sort of force God's hand so that the so that all so that things would be moving so that God's promises would be jump started. She had a female Egyptian servant, Hagar. Now, we might wonder, well, where where did Hagar come from? 
early on in the chapter, uh, Abram had uh, gone down to Egypt because there was a famine in the promised land. He, he for some reason, just determined, I think it's going to be better if I leave God's promised land to me and go down to Egypt. And there, some bad things happen, but by God's grace, the Pharaoh there gives him lots of possessions, including servants. And that's probably where Hagar came from. So you can imagine the scene. The camera's fixed on this woman, Sarai, and her struggle with barrenness, frustration. She's unable to conceive. Maybe the guilt, the security of the promises depend on her. So not only is she going to let down herself, but she lets down her husband and she lets down this future kingdom that's supposed to come from Abram's line. I mean, there's a lot of pressure here. And then the camera moves to Hagar. And it's in her that all of Sarai's hopes are stored up. She is the door to freedom from frustration, freedom from guilt. She is the door that secures her family's future. Surely this young girl is fertile. And verse 2 makes her plan explicit. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, this thinking is right and wrong at the same time. She says that God had prevented her from bearing children. Now, that's actually right. So if you look through the Bible, who is the one ultimately responsible for opening wombs and closing wombs? It's God. So she gets it right there. God has prevented her from bearing children. We see this here in this case. We see it in Isaac and Rebecca's case. And then the most famous case, we see it between Mary and then Joseph in the New Testament as they eventually come to bear, though barren, she eventually bears the Savior. But where Sarai gets it wrong, where she gets into trouble, is not that, it's not that she said that God prevented her, but it's what she does next. She says, go into my servant. I mean, it's very plain language of what she intends her husband to do with her maidservant. Go into my servant. This is a troubling fact here. What she does really is abandon God's plan for her. She really abandons God's plan for her and she opts rather for the culture's plan that surrounds her. So it would have been acceptable, totally normal, let's say, if if a husband and wife could not bear children. Well, what do you do? You actually do give your maidservant to the husband. And then if a child were to come from that union, well, then that child would basically be considered Uh, the husband and the wife's but that's what the culture said and it's to that that she's going towards problem solved so she thinks she's abandoning god's problem or god's solution and opting rather for the culture's solution instead unfortunately this solution meant going against the very one flesh union that god had brought into place there with the very first couple of adam and eve where they are united they are united as one flesh and here she's saying well we're going to go a different route here even though keep in mind she has the promises already even though she has all the power of heaven on her side yet she says i'm going to opt for the culture solution instead of god's promise her answer here is a surrogate mother a surrogate uh, a surrogate wife the other troubling fact is that sarai's grand solution is exactly what abram did not like previously i mean this was a substance of his complaint to god 
in uh, Genesis 15, 2. Look, go ahead and look there. Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. <clears throat> Here, Abram basically is complaining to God about his situation. God says, I'm going to deliver you. I am your shield. And he says, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So he's not even a Hebrew here. He is of a different nation. He is a Syrian man. He says, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household. That is this slave in this particular case, the servant. He will be my heir. So he, he knows that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Abram knows that that's not the way it's supposed to be. And Sarai does too. And that's confirmed in Genesis chapter 17. She laughs at this idea. It's almost like it's patronizing to, to, to understand or even to imply that a child is going to come from my very own womb. So her solution is exactly what um, Abram had complained about. And even though God had specifically said, no, Eliezer will not be this surrogate heir will not be your heir of your house. Nevertheless, Sarah still seems to find no problem in concocting this plan that equates uh, Hagar with deliverance. And she really is taking things into her own hands, isn't it? The promise is spinning out of control. Anxiety is rising to her eyeballs and she's trying to, to just reel it back in to a place where she can actually control God's promise. She's taking things into her own hands. God has prevented me, so let me come up with a way out. Maybe even the thought is God has prevented me, so I am going to prevent God. You know where I see this creeping into my own life? I mean, you know, the situation is totally different. I don't have a promise specifically in the same way that God had given Abram and Sarah a promise. But you know where I see this uh, creeping up in my own life? It's in the ways that I deal with the circumstances of life that I simply do not like, right? You guys know what it's like. You have some circumstance you don't like. You feel like your life is, so, is creeping away from you. Anxiety rises and you say, surely God, no good can come from something like this. And so immediately the gut reaction is to do what? You figure out one plan to get yourself out of it. And not only that, but you think of like a thousand other plans to get yourself out of that one plan if that thing, that thing fails. Surely, God, no, nothing good can come from something like this. What situation are you guys wanting to get out of so badly? Ill health? A rough financial patch? Maybe unemployment? Maybe lack of clarity about the future? Perhaps you yourself want children, but you can't. Perhaps you have too many children and you don't want them anymore. Maybe you have relational difficulties with your children. You know, you just want them to love you in, a, in the same way that you have so given yourself to loving them. And you just want that situation to go away. You know, if you're like me, the gut reaction is to want to get out from that. You come up with your plan. And there's so many times when I find myself coming up with that plan without ever thinking, how does God want me to love him more in the midst of this situation? How does he want me to trust him more in the midst of this situation? What is he teaching me through the circumstances of life? 
Is God reminding me of my own inadequacies by holding out those to me as well as his all sufficiency? Right? That's how trials work, right? It, it brings us to our end so that we might reflect and say, gosh, you know what? All the, though I might want to keep all these plates spinning and keep everything underneath my control, yet finally my own anxiety screams out to me, I am not in control. And so I reflect on my own inadequacies. And then I see, hopefully, by God's grace, his spirit turns me to Christ and sees his all-sufficiency. And we've seen that as already as a theme that works through Genesis. The sufficiency of God's grace in all of our situations. Go ahead and turn to James. And you see that uh, you know, God has an intention for trials here. James chapter 1. He says, count it, this is verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's outward trials he's thinking about here, situations of life. Count it all joy when you face these things, for you know, that's for giving you a reason. The reason is, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there he has the future in mind. That you will be worked out into perfection, ultimately in heaven. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Particularly there in those situations where you don't know what to do in the future. He says, look, you're going to lack wisdom, so you pray for it. And God generously gives it to you. It will be given to him. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Verse 9, let a lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Even though he goes through these things, yet God will exalt him and the rich and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And then he just goes on. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test. This is not just a random test. This here is a God given test. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That there he's thinking about inner trial, inner temptation, the desires to sin. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And then he has this verse 16 there, an absolute clarification for us. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And there you know what he's thinking of? He's thinking of those very outward trials that he brings towards our path. Those very things, he says, are they come from a God who is absolutely good and who doesn't shift like the changing bodies of the earth, the planets. These things are divinely brought to us so that we might be sifted and so that we might produce so that in us might be produced sanctification and grow in holiness. I mean, this is how trials work. By God's grace. So if you yourself find your head spinning over how to get out from trials. Without ever finding your head spinning about how to grow from them, you probably take things into your own hands. 
You probably do this more than you even realize. And it sounds trite, okay? It sounds trite, I know, but God's goal for our earthly lives is not that they be free from trials. God's goal for our earthly lives is not that we would be free from trials, but that we would learn to trust him in the midst of them as he's going to deliver us from them finally in heaven. So you have this difference. You have this earthly time, and then you have this heavenly time. God is delivering us from our earthly trials. That is certainly true as he does that in heaven. But his desire is that we grow and learn to lean on him in the midst of them. So if you find yourself coming up with plans to get out of them, your, your heart might reveal a very Sarai-like heart that says, even though God has prevented me from a prosperous life, however you define that, you may be saying, well, let me just go ahead and prevent him. Friends, learn to ask these questions in the midst of trials. How does God want me to love him more through the situation? How does he want me to trust in him more? And then what is he teaching me? What could he possibly be teaching me through this difficult situation? I mean, is God reminding you of your own inadequacies and his all-sufficiency? That's really how it works. Paul says that to a certain group, they were in financial troubles in order that they might learn to trust in the riches of God. At one point in time in 2 Corinthians, he says that he goes through all of these different trials, uh, feeling the sting of death, the judgment of death itself, he says, in order that he might depend on the God who raises the dead. I mean, that's how these trials are to work. Abraham is supposed to know this. So let's go ahead and look and see what Abram does because he's already learned this lesson. Let's look at verse two. Let's see how the husband and the leader of the family can bring stability here. Verse number two, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Okay, so as this is a narrative, we should be thinking like, no, Abram, like, what are you doing? Abram, you already learned this lesson. Verse number three. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Abram here is spoken as sitting on the sidelines here. In verse 3, I mean, who's doing all of the action in this narrative, right? Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years, that's, that's almost passively, he's very much passively describing what Abram did. He lived in the land of Canaan. Sarai then, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, she's taking, and she gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And then verse 4, we could spend a lot of time on verse 4, but we won't. The only active thing we see Abram doing here. And he went in to Hagar and she conceived. I mean, he's sitting on the sidelines here. Sarai takes and gives. And Abram simply just goes into her. I mean, what happened to the, Sarah, the Abram who had just led this night mission to go and rescue Lot from the great Ketoleomer? He's, he's gone. He's, he's on the sidelines and he only comes to action when he's doing things that foolish men do. Do these, does this uh, interaction here remind you of anything here? Abram and Sarai? I mean, in Scripture, who else has listened to the voice of his wife? Not that that's bad in any way, but when the leader is not leading and a wife is coming up with a sinful plan, then it most certainly is. 
And it is vice versa, too. If a husband's coming up with an ungodly plan and the wife is listening, well, that leader is certainly putting his wife in a very bad situation. What woman came up with a plan? And then her husband took and ate. Here, here, Sarai is taking and giving to her husband. And that so clearly reminds us of Adam and Eve, where Eve took of the fruit and gave to her husband and her husband ate. And both men, Adam and Abram, are sort of like, that's a good idea. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. I bet you in Sarai's situation, it seemed like a really good idea. They were, after all, waiting 10 years again at that point in time. Sarai is 75 at this point in time. Menopause, if it hadn't already set in, is certainly going to set in. The average lifespan was around 100 years here. 75 years old. She has to do something, otherwise the promise is basically going to fall flat on the ground. Her biological purpose has expired. So she serves no biological purpose if she cannot have children. I mean, that's kind of a sad reality for someone who wants to have children. And so they look for something. They look for anything possible that they could do to set God's plan in motion. Anything they could do. But, you know, it's funny. You, you see here, even though 10 years has passed, Genesis 15 is set right before Genesis chapter 16, even though 10 years has passed. And what were they supposed to have learned from Genesis chapter 15? As we saw last week, the one who makes God's, the one who makes the promises is the same one who keeps them. That's the whole deal about the covenant, right? Abram and God, when they made the covenant, they were both supposed to have walked through the pieces as they make a covenant or a promise sealed in blood. But instead, God himself says, no, I got this. You want to know how serious I am about fulfilling all of my promises to you? I will go through the pieces on my own. And if I don't fulfill it, may what happen to these animals who are just split in half and the blood is pouring, may that happen to me. And here, Abram and Sarah, they look like they're doing, looking for something, anything to do to set God's plan in motion. This is a sad episode in the life of Abram and Sarai. It's one reason why it makes it so tragic. God had made a covenant with Abram, revealing just how serious he was, that he was going to do it. And then the next chapter over, you see Abram and Sarai acting in absolute desperation. As if God is not sovereign. As if they can actually do something to get God to all of a sudden respond and say, oh yes, my promise. Let me go ahead and fulfill it. They're going at it on their own. What is the result of this grand plan? It is a monster fail. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That is Hagar looking at contempt with on her mistress. That is Sarai. So on the one hand, their plan succeeds. They get a child. Good. But we know on the other hand that the plan was failed to be, had failed to begin with because it wasn't according to the revealed will of God. Everything is made worse here as Hagar acts foolishly towards her mistress, Sarai, treating her with contempt and scorn and pride and arrogance. And even the pagan world wouldn't stand for this kind of insubordination. It wasn't allowed in their laws. Respect was still to be shown in this situation by the maidservant to her mistress. 
And in many ways, this fail here mirrors the failure of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 when he goes down to Egypt. Abram gets into the land, but then there's a famine in the land and he decides that he's going to go down and out from it. He chooses to find refuge in Egypt. That's a major fail. And there, Abram concocts the plan and then Sarai follows. Here, Sarai concocts the plan and then Abram follows only to have it blow up in their face. And the situation is spiraling out of control. Everyone here is at fault. Really because they're not trusting in God. Verse number five, look there. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. You hear more of that Genesis 3 echo? There, Adam and Eve are not taking responsibility for anything. Eve is blaming Adam and then Adam is blaming the serpent. Same thing happens here. Everyone, everybody's blaming everybody else. Sarai thought, uh, though it was her plan, shifts the entire blame onto Abram blaming hagar's reaction and to some degree she's right because hagar was wrong sarai blames abram because he's the leader of the family and legitimately so but but abram doesn't take responsibility either instead he washes his hands clean of the whole situation behold your servant is is in your hands you do with her as you please as you please so there's like abram he sort of wanders back to the sidelines where where was this abram who had such great faith to lead this night mission in, in Genesis chapter 14. Nobody here comes out clean. Let this be clear. When they're not trusting in God, nobody is coming out unscathed. Everybody is at fault. Sarai is at fault because she put, puts her hope in Hagar. Abram is at fault because he's sitting passively on the wayside, not leading his family. Hagar is at fault because even though she conceives, she is proud and arrogant. Sarai then is wrong and blames and Abram simply tries to wash his hands of the situation. And then Sarai deals harshly with this Egyptian. There's a lot of strife going on. And you've got to wonder, as Moses was writing this account, Moses was the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, he's writing, having come out of Egypt. And certainly this would have been a sting to the less godly Israelites who see this story in here and they realize oh you know my goodness the israelite the hebrew woman was dealing very harshly with the egyptian and maybe even the ungodly ones would say good glad that she did that but as we come to see eventually we see that this is actually a wonderful example a teaching opportunity to some of those israelites who were the less godly folks there's a lot of strife here between abram and his family but not only that Lots of strife between Abram and the nations. And if we remember Genesis chapter 12, we know that strife between Abram and the nations was not part of the promise, right? Let me read to you the, the promise again. And I will make of you a great nation. Okay, we understand that. He's going to have lots of kids and lots of kids after there. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those and bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. If he's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, why is the Egyptian humble maidservant, well, he's to some degree humble, why is she running from the man with the promise? 
The guy who is supposed to be a blessing to the nations. I mean, Abram's track record is not good. Here, instead of being a blessing to the nations, Sarai is treating her Egyptian maidservant harshly. The same word used for when Egypt was dealing harshly with the Israelites. Back in chapter 12, Abram and Sarai, they go down to Egypt and then they concoct this lie because they don't, they fear, they're not trusting God. They lie to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh then acts on bad information and then God brings along some very bad consequences for that Pharaoh. He's not a blessing to the nations here. Instead, they're bringing turmoil to the nations, all because they're taking things into their own hands, right? This situation is not good. Things are spiraling out of control, not only in their family, but then also amongst the nations who are very much watching God's people. They are very much trying to force the hand of God in order to fulfill his promises based on their own timetable. And instead of setting in motion the fulfillment of God's promises, you see how he's actually working against them, if that were possible? Slowing them down, if that were possible? And unfortunately, we see it again and again. We see it in Abram's life. We see it in Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's life. And in all those who struggle to live in the reality of the promises of God. You know, the danger of us taking things into our own hand is that it leaves us in slavery to your own ingenious or your lack of it. Some of you guys might think, well, gosh, you know, I am actually quite genius. Others of you realize, you know what, that issue that I couldn't solve a week ago, relational issue, I know that that's out of control. I don't pretend that it's not, but I really know it is. And we do this. I mean, I have non-Christian friends who stand in front of the mirror and Christian friends who stand in the mirror and try and coach themselves into doing the right thing, even though they know that the situation cannot be controlled. It leaves us in slavery to our own ingenious or your lack of it. It leaves us in slavery to your own ability or your inability to plan. Now, all of you folks who love checking off to-do lists, you know what that's like. It leaves you in slavery as well to your own consistency or your inconsistency to carry out those very plans. Does it not? So for Sarah, she's so dependent. Once she leaves her eyes off, brings her eyes off of God and onto herself and onto Hagar and Abram, she all of a sudden is in slavery to the machinations that she can come up with. Her plan. If Abram doesn't perform, she's in slavery to Abram. If Hagar doesn't conceive, she's in slavery to Hagar. If this plan that she herself concocted to give her deliverance fails, then she's letting herself down. So naturally, if any of these things fail, she blames everybody. She's in slavery to everybody. Everybody determines the ways in which she feels and the ways in which she moves forward. It leaves her dependent on everybody except for God. So th that thing that you find is slipping out of your control. How are you trying to take things into your hands? Now, no doubt we are supposed to plan. I mean, Paul the Apostle had plans. He had plans to go to Rome. He had plans to go to Spain. It's okay to plan. But here we see things going out of control when we're actually taking things into our hands in a way in which we actually think that that thing or our plan actually delivers us. Where we set our hopes in these things. So if you're trying to defeat illness, you know what this looks like? It means in your discouragement after maybe your first doctor has so-called failed you, 
You spend hours searching the internet for just the right one. Dependent on doctors. If that treatment didn't work out so much, you spend hours revealing where your heart's trust is in, searching remedies, diets, even rumors. You're trying to defeat financial challenges. I mean, how many hours do you spend into job hunting or developing that perfect resume that has absolutely no errors in it at all, thinking that that golden resume would actually deliver you from what God himself is trying to teach you? Portfolio managers. You're swapping banks, going from bank to bank, manager to manager. Maybe you depend on your own frugality and get so ticked off that you yourself can't really manage these things. All these things leave you dependent on man and not God. Now, the the ultimate thing, where this really goes south, is when you bring that attitude to salvation. You have that guilt that you know that your conscience is telling you, you know you need to deal with that. You know that there's something out of your control that you can't ultimately reconcile. You bring that, I need to do it on my own. I'm going to take it into my own hands. And you move that over to salvation. You're dependent on your own work to get you into heaven to outweigh the balances the good and the bad and so you're consciously thinking about the good that you can do or maybe you're dependent on your own works or your acts of holiness because you think that's what's get that is what gets you to a holy god that's what gets you saved instead of god himself granting you and declaring you holy and righteous through his son and through jesus's blood So you see how you can easily just go from one attitude and bring that over to salvation. Then all of a sudden, you're left just like Sarai and Abram. I mean, those sins that haunt you. Those sins that haunt you. The ones that you can't get rid of. The ones that your mind always goes back to. The ones that seem like your mind just won't let you forget about. Let that bring you to your end. And see that the situation is not out, not in your control. Your very own conscience tells you that over and over and over again. But when you bring that to God, the God who makes promises and God who fulfills them all, you realize that God is the one who can actually take care of my problems. And so trusting in him is far better than trusting in ourselves, whether it be trusting in ourselves to defeat illness, to get out of financial woes, and especially our most important thing. How are we to be reconciled with God the Father who is all just, all holy, all righteous? And you know, as your conscience tells you, that you are not. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What do you do when the heat comes? When your situations come? You're going to take things into your own hand, trust in yourselves, trust in man, let your heart wander away from God. Or are you going to let this particular lesson, as Genesis 15 is right next to Genesis 16, 
You're going to let this lesson that Abram and Sarai teach us that trusting in the Lord is far better. No fear when the heat comes. Instead, always bearing fruit. My leaves are always green, even though the Lord slay me. I need not fear. So as we move from section one, we just cover section one, verses one to six. We move now to section two, verses seven to twenty one. And the focus shifts from Abram to Sarai, Abram and Sarai. And God sort of leaves them in strife. He turns now and teaches Hagar a lesson that they need to learn. Keep in mind here, as the Israelites had just come out of Egypt, this was a lesson to them, a very real lesson to them. That God is God. And he fulfills his promises to everyone who believes him, whether they be an Israelite or whether they be a maidservant, a lowly maidservant here named Hagar. There's a beautiful picture of God's compassion, the exact thing that Abram and Sarai needed to learn and to remember. Look at verse seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. This really is a flight here. The spring on the way to shore, she's in the wilderness. Keep in mind, she is single. She is a married single woman, basically, because she's leaving her husband's care. And she is a pregnant woman in the wilderness. She is going to die. And really, what she, she leaves Abram's care, supposed care, as Sarai is dealing, dealing harshly with her. And she's fleeing home. This is basically the northeastern side of Egypt here. She's going home. But for a pregnant maidservant who ran away from her mistress, her life is basically over. Her life is done for. What's clear is that she didn't want to be there, but she's risking all of everything, risking a whole entire life to get out of there. And it's then that the angel of the Lord found her. It's the first time the word angel is ever used in Scripture. And this isn't, a, uh, this isn't a typical messenger that we find in Scripture. This is the angel of the Lord. And as we know, if, if we were to look through Genesis and see other accounts, and then Exodus and Judges, for example, we see that this angel of the Lord appears, and, and when this angel speaks, the people hearing, they, did, they say that that is God himself. So people have said that maybe this is a, uh, a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus before he took on flesh, so this is an appearance of Christ. Um, some people do teach that. Re- uh, regardless, this is an angel of the Lord who is a manifestation of God himself. He appears, he personally appears to this lowly maidservant who has been treated harshly, and he just showers her with compassion. And you read this in the words that she says about him. Look there in verse 9, we're going to get there. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So that's in recognition that she was showing contempt to her mistress and that shouldn't happen. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So this word, this word of the Lord that comes to to Hagar might sound bad, but it actually is very good. 
Okay, in terms of the bad, Ishmael does become a donkey of a man. In other words, he's so independent and his desire for freedom leads to chaos uh, and, and distrust amongst him and all of his kinsmen. That's pretty obvious. But to Hagar, this promise is a hope-filled promise here. She most likely knew, keep in mind, that Abram and Sarai had the promises. That from him would come a, 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 that he would be a father of a nation, a multitude. And then he would go on and be a blessing to them. Here's lowly Hagar, treated harshly. She then realizes that God has brought to her a promise that her child too would be a father to multitude. So in that, he's, he's showering compassion. But you really see it, in, in terms of compassion, in what he says. He says, you shall call his name Ishmael. His, the name means God hears. Now, Muslims, they find their father in the faith to be Ishmael. And here God says, God hears, Hagar, your affliction. And then a multitude will come from this man because the Lord has listened to your affliction here. So he is the God who hears and he is the God who listens to our affliction as well. And then look at 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Now, that's fascinating, right? Because we know that the seeing God is a God who cares. But here what's equated to this caring God is a God who speaks to her. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here in this well, in the wilderness where God has come to my salvation and deliverance. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So Abram has the promises. Yes, certainly. But here Hagar brings a lesson as it were, to Abram and Sarai, who are back in strife, that God is a God who always sees. Having received the help of God at the well, having received the promises, she then calls God, you are a God of seeing, a God of caring. The fact that the Lord sees has great significance. He is a caring God. He is a aware God. He is a God who knows, a God who understands, and a God who does something about it for his people. In Hagar's case, the angel of the Lord appears and brings the word of blessing. This story teaches us that we have a tender God, don't we? Here he seeks out the dejected and marginalized Hagar to lift up her spirit. And unfortunately, Abram, the man chosen by God, fails to look after her. But Abram's God... He is a faithful God, a God of seeing. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. And so the well is named Bir Lahairoi, which means belonging to the living one, my seeing one. Even though I find myself in the wilderness struggling for life, God is a God of seeing and a God who delivers. So that situation, once again, that you find you just can't control, that situation that you feel is just dragging you down, that one that you can't simply handle. Do you guys realize that God is a seeing God? In all of your difficult afflictions and the trials that you go through, do you know, not only in your head, but in your heart, that God is a compassionate God? Listen to these, listen to uh, some of these Psalms, these verses from the Psalms, which the Psalms are called the Bible's own hymn book. 
which we are to sing again and again and again, whether we are victorious in the things that God leads us to, or whether we are, as sometimes David says, flooding our bed with tears. Yet David has a consistent hope. Listen to this. God is a, this is Psalm 46 verse 1. He is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 62 verse 8. Trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. So right there, it eliminates this sort of numb, trudging through life, gritting your teeth, just getting by, proclaiming the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is my deliverance. Here, pour out your hearts to me, God says, for I am your refuge. Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Jesus felt the weight, right? You know that weight that you are feeling right now, if you find that situation that you so desperately want out of? Jesus actually identifies with your situation. That's why he took on flesh, so that he might actually be a faithful and merciful high priest who identifies with people of the flesh. And so in the garden, when he's praying with tears, that's him identifying with your very own tears. As he seeks to entrust himself to God, saying, your will be done. He's, identif- he's there to identify with you who struggles to say, may your will be done. Who struggles to take God's will and force it by our timetable for deliverance. God is a God who sees you, a God who knows you, a God who knows exactly what you are going through here. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to follow Jesus, you know the most important way, the most clear way that God shows his compassion to people is how he sends his son to win salvation for us. Right? I said that God, Jesus himself, takes on flesh to identify with sinners, right? He therefore takes on the sin and the punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve, and he goes to the cross knowing that he is going to identify with sinners who trust in him and who repent of their sins. And then, he, and then when, it, when salvation is accomplished, he is calling all sinners to repent of their sins, turn from them and believe on him, the one who alone can win salvation for us and accomplish it. The one who can wipe out the judgment that was due us and save us from those things. And again, I'm sure you probably know exactly what this is like, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin. Wanting somehow to be reconciled with those you sin against. You know that that's all supposed to point you to the fact that you are ultimately supposed to be reconciled to God, your creator and maker. So let those things drive you to the cross here where God showers his compassion on sinners and then calls them. If you want rest, you come to me because I understand. Jesus is not only the shepherd who gathers his sheep, but he is a shepherd who dies for them. So you, if you are visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, he calls you to repent and believe and to do that today. And you will know salvation and the compassion of God. That God himself is a God who sees. A God who doesn't plan things and say, okay, it's over to you. You guys go ahead and do things. And then once you do the right things, then eventually God's plan of salvation, my plan of salvation, will go ahead and begin. He is a God who makes plans and a God who fulfills them. Every single time and he does that by his grace, most clearly through his son who died on the cross for sins. So where are we left at 
in the chapter, by the end of it. It's very interesting, and we're supposed to feel the sting of it, those of us who struggle to live in faith and not by sight. Actually, look at 16.1. Go ahead and look there. Look at how this narrative begins. Now, Sarai, feel the sting of this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's a threat to the promise. If she doesn't do something quick, the promise is going to fall flat on their face because, you know, they really are up to her. And then we are to feel the sting there in verse 15. And Hagar, after all that Sarai and Abram had done, after all of this plan that they had concocted, after all of the strife that had spread, not only in their family, but then also to representatives of other nations. And Hagar bore Abram a son. Ouch. And Abram called his name, called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. They're right back where they started from. They may have a child, but it's not a child according to the promise, which is exactly what Paul says later on, that Hagar bore a child named Ishmael according to the flesh. But Isaac, the son who will come from Abram and Sarai, he was a child who was born according to the promise. They're right back where they started from. Struggling to live by faith. And not by sight. And he and her, they are both a wonderful example for ourselves. As people who struggle to remember that God is a God of seeing, a God of compassion, a God who understands and knows exactly what we're going through. As we seek to trust in God's promises. We too, like Abram and Sarai, have some major fails in our lives as Christians. Especially as we try to rescue ourselves from what we think are our problems. May it never be that from here on out, may it never be that we will say or give account to what we've done and say in our hearts, our shady hearts at times, that what God has prevented from us, we therefore want to respond and prevent God from teaching us what he wants to in the midst of these things. And know for certain that God, even though we are faithless at times, he always remains faithful to his promises. And we see exactly that as we continue on in the story of Abram. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that rescue is not in ourselves or in our plans. Because if it were, Lord Jesus, we would know that we would not get very far. We confess our frailty. We confess our inability. But Lord Jesus, we know that you are all sufficient. So Lord, in the midst of trials, in the midst of these situations where we so badly want you to move and do things, we pray, Lord, that we would have the understanding by your spirit to know that you in fact are because you want us to glory in Jesus alone and not in anything else. So Lord, may we know that deliverance is ultimately in your son. Father, as we know the current events of today, we know even as Christians are being crucified, eight of them in the last few days in Syria, Christians crucified by others. We know, Lord Jesus, they stand for us as an example that ultimate deliverance and rescue comes in Jesus and not in earthly circumstances. Father, we pray that you would help our weak faith. We confess that our faith is weak. And we pray that by the Spirit's power, 
you would help us move forward in boldness, trusting in your promises, knowing that for certain you are a God who not only makes your promises, but you are a God who always, without a shadow of a doubt, always fulfills them. We praise you for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness, for your love, and for the fact that you are a God who sees. In your name we pray. Amen.